Okay, tonight is Wednesday the 6th. Our message is going to be blinded by the light. Primarily, we're going to be in John 10, but I'm going to start a little bit earlier. Y'all are thinking of the song, aren't you? Yeah, I'd sing it for you. But Primarily, we're going to be in John 10, but we're going to start in John 9.39. So you can turn there in your Bibles if you like. Uh, as we taught the previous message, uh, Born in Sin, uh, this was something that came right at the end of the message that was didn't really flow with the rest of the message, so I didn't give it its due justice. So tonight we're going to cover that uh, along with the first few parts of John 10. So we're going to go John 9.39 through John 10.21. At least that's the plan. Uh, I want you to remember the setting as we begin to do this, though. It's important. I remind you all of that a lot. A lot of what I do is remind you about Jewish culture, remind you about the setting that the Scripture was written in, and that's because... Most of the heresies that we have, most of the wrong thinking that we have, comes from not understanding the culture that God chose to reveal Himself in. There is a reason in the 4,000 years of history prior to Jesus, God did not reveal Himself in the way of an exact representation uh, in some other culture. He chose the time and place, calling it the fullness of time, and in the man Jesus to totally reveal His, his uh, substance to everyone. So at this feast that we studied in John 7, Jesus had announced himself as this divine source of water. As they were pouring from a golden vessel into 12 earthen vessels and singing out of Isaiah, Jesus stood up and said in John 7:37, "If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me." That happened in John 7 and uh, Jeremiah had prophesied. He had prophesied that those that forsook the spring of living water Names would be written in the dust as a testimony against them. And then in John 8, we see Jesus defending a woman caught in adultery, writing those people's names in the dust because they had forsaken him, the spring of living water. But something else happened in John 8 that is worth remembering. It's going to carry into tonight. In the background, right after Jesus finished doing this, setting him forth, himself forth as an example, in the temple treasury where they were extinguishing of these enormous candelabras. Jesus stood up at the moment that they were putting them out and these things had symbolized the fire by night and the pillar of cloud fire by day. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. And then he began to teach about his actions. That's important in John 8 because what happens in John 9 is that Jesus begins to teach by his actions why He's God, and what you should do. This reveals some really important things. Tonight's message is going to be blinded by the light. We're going to talk about Jesus' effect on the people, why they received Him the way they did, what His effect was. This is because in John 10, Jesus is going to make a very clear distinction. It will be our next message. It will be called mere men. There are two kinds of people that will walk the planet from Jesus forward. Only two classes of people. Those that were normal, ordinary men and those that were declared to be children of God, sons of God. Extraordinary men. Supernatural men. Men with divine substance in them. So, uh, that is setting the stage. Uh, I want you to keep in mind that some days have passed since we've been at the Feast of Tabernacles. We've not quite, quite gotten to Hanukkah yet. So, we're somewhere between Tabernacles and December. And uh, we don't know how far. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it's very clear in people's minds that Jesus has stood up and announced Himself as the light of the world. It's evident that John is trying to build on that theme as we enter into this next chapter. So starting in John 9.39. Y'all with me? Y'all can answer when I talk to you. Y'all with me? Everybody's going to read John 9.39? Preach <laughs> it. Jesus, and by the way, Jesus has just healed a man that had been born uh, blind. The Pharisees have been so upset by this because He did it on a Sabbath. Can you imagine being upset that somebody who had been born blind had eyes because it was done on a Sabbath? But they were. And had thrown this man out of the synagogue. Okay? He had been thrown out. So Jesus goes and finds him. And in John 9, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, that's one of those statements we could just read right over and think, what do you mean? And keep going and looking for something that had more to do with grace or something that you liked more. Jesus said for judgment, He came into the world. 
Uh, that's interesting because earlier he said he didn't come to condemn the world, right? He said the world already stood condemned. The whole message in the book of John is about bringing life. Jesus bringing life to people. But Jesus' life, this representation of Jesus, uh, that the Bible sometimes refers to as light, and for all, the, all of the reasons that you might imagine light, there's something shining forth from Jesus by way of His life that will bring judgment on the earth. Now, this is not judgment in the way that you would think of a spiritual power. It's not judgment on Satan, although that does come. This is not judgment as far as heaven or hell or a final judgment. It's not what it's talking about. This is going to draw a dividing line in the sand. It's going to show that some people are declared to see God for who He is, and some people, although they see God, don't like it and are considered blind. And it's interesting. So in John 9.39, He says, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? It's funny, they seemed to get the clear emphasis, didn't they? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Boy, isn't that interesting? Your guilt remains. Isn't it a pretty common thought? I mean, I've heard lately we had a, a world political leader die. And I've heard... What a great humanitarian he was. I've heard what a great man of peace he was. And without picking on this guy or anything else, I began to think about that. I don't know if you could call Jesus a man of peace. People do. People call him a man of peace. They say, oh, Jesus was peaceful. He never led an army. He never raged a battle. And yet he changed the whole world. And they speak about that. Jesus himself in Luke 12, verse 50, said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring division. Then he spoke about nearly every facet of your family life, talking about division in the closest circles. Father from son, mother from daughter. He goes all the way down to the in-laws, which is, of course, not so hard to believe. But, I mean, he did that. And so how do you reconcile that? Why do people think that it's a religious thing, a good thing to bring peace? I'm going to submit to you today that the actions and life of Jesus do just the opposite. They absolutely bring division, and they were meant to. They were meant to draw a line in the sands of Israel that people would step on one side or the other. And this is going back several messages for me. Y'all remember, I've been telling you that the gospel was never meant to leave somebody stagnant in the center. It was meant to move you to cold or to hot. Jesus' very life was doing that. This is why the Bible says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. You are not doing your job if your life causes everybody to want to join together in unity and just sit around and sing Kumbaya. Your life is supposed to push people towards God or to choose the other side. But do one or the other wholeheartedly. That's what your life is supposed to do. It's awful interesting considering our 24-7 news coverage lately, isn't it? But that's not what this is about. Okay. So it's clear from the Scripture that Jesus being the light of the world would have two very different effects on the people. I didn't read it to you, but I quoted it in Luke 12, verse 50. You can see that he furthers this idea by saying he came to bring division and not peace. You notice you don't hear that Scripture quoted a lot? It's kind of like when David smiles. You can see him smiling. He's happy as he's looking forward to something in Psalm 58. And he says, wow, the righteous are going to bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. In the 12 years that I've been in Christianity, I've never heard anybody mention that from a pulpit besides me. Isn't that interesting? You know, we're all fine with uh, salvation and flowers, but when it comes to coming with recompense or coming with judgment, we don't talk about that very much. The gospel is a dividing line in human history meant to push you to one side or another. And Jesus is not just a big bless me God that is coming back to pat you on the back. That's not at all how the Scripture portrays Him. Jesus came that we might see. Let's focus on the good thing first. Because the first thing Jesus said in John 9.39 is, For judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see. This is a really interesting statement to make, isn't it? He has just healed somebody who was blind. Doesn't that give him the right to talk about this? I could stand up all day and tell you, Today we're going to talk about NASA and how to improve the space shuttle. But I wouldn't be all that credible since I've not been on a space shuttle. I'm not an astronaut and, you know... So recently I thought NASA stood for something that it doesn't stand for. So you probably wouldn't want to listen to me. But if I just returned from living on the space station for six months, 
You might listen to something I had to say. The very acts that Jesus did, he's been making the case for several chapters now, and he will continue to give him credibility. He said, I don't need anybody else to testify for me. The Father is with me by way of the deeds that he does, and the Spirit's right here showing you. And yet they didn't accept his testimony. Or at least some didn't. Okay, the life or light. I will always use those terms synonymously in John for a reason. I want you, when you see the word light, to associate it with life. Because John does. The light or life of Jesus shines upon our paths, giving us a visible image of the way God wants us to live. Before we go to some of these scriptures, I want to read to you out of Hebrews real quick. And you can turn there if you want. In the first chapter of Hebrews, this writer, whoever he may be, and almost certainly a Jew, says something very interesting about Jesus. Matthew, you deal with all kind of thermal photography and all kind of stuff. What is radiance? What is something that's radiant? It's a waveform of energy and light falls into that category, doesn't it? Listen to this, Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. That's quite a statement to make, isn't it? You couldn't make that statement about somebody that lived in a cave all of their life and was thought to be holy because they never spoke, could you? I mean, how do you back up a statement like that. This guy's the son who made the universe and through whom and for whom everything's made. How do you begin to qualify a statement like that? Well, here's how the writer of Hebrews did it. The son is the radiance, light, of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. To the writer of Hebrews, when he looked at the life of Jesus, what he saw in Jesus' actions was an exact representation of God. The life that Jesus lived showed the writer of Hebrews what God was like. Now, that's a really interesting point because as we look at it, we see how we should live. We see the light or the life that we should have. In fact, Jesus calls it the life to the fullest or the abundant life when we see what Jesus did and how He did it. But other people see different things. I want to show you some scriptures from the Psalms and from the Old Testament that begin to form in your mind how the Hebrews, how the Jews would look at light and how they were used to God shining His light upon them and upon their path to do things. You'll turn to the Psalms. We're going to have several scriptures there. In Psalm 36, I can never find it. Starting in verse 5. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Now, did you all even know that was in the Psalms, or did you all just think third day sang that? <laughs> Isn't it amazing the really anointed things are not new? You know, we sang the Hallel the other night for the first time, and it felt so anointed and it felt so good. And David wrote that in Psalm 118. You know? I mean, it was written a thousand years before Jesus lived. It's no different with the songs today most of the time. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadows of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus announced Himself in John 7 as a fountain of life. That's what He was doing. While they're pouring out this fountain of life into twelve earthen vessels, He stood up and said, If any man thirst of Me, or if any man thirst, let him come and drink of Me. The writer adds, By this He meant the Holy Spirit, who was not yet, had not yet been poured out on them. Then in the next chapter, Jesus stands up and announced Himself as the very light of God that was to lead them in the presence. Don't their psalms just say in verse 9, with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So when Jesus begins to teach and when He begins to do examples, it's perfectly natural for Him to make the appeal that He's going to make later on in John 10. Hey, don't believe me unless you see me do what the Father does. But if you see me do that, then you need to believe the miracles. Doesn't that make perfect sense to you? 
As Christians, we look for this light. We look for this truth and we walk in it too. Turn to Psalm 43. I'm going to read you more Scriptures than I probably should out of the Psalms, but while we're here, we might as well. In Psalm 43, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God. Anybody ever prayed like that? (laughs) And plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. Anybody prayed like that this week? I'm kidding. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Isn't it good to see that the psalmist pouted sometimes too? He never stayed there though. Praise always pulled him out. You heard me? Praise always pulled him out. Matthew's going to teach on worship here. Is he going to teach Wednesday? Next Wednesday. Praise will pull you out of where you are. Christians, more than a love for the Word, more than a prayer life, which I hope you all have both of those things, praise will pull you out of wherever you are. You've got to learn to praise. And when you stand in here like you're in stone underwear, I know you're not praising by yourself in freedom. This is the place to learn. This is the training ground. This is the practice field so that when you go out there, you get it right. Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. It was firmly fixed in the Hebrews' mind that revelation, light, the life of God, would go out from God and lead them to where they needed to go. But how on earth could you know it was from God? I mean, how do you know the difference between one guy who stands up and says he's heard from God and another? Well, the prophet Moses told them that God would raise up another prophet like him. You need to listen to him or you'd be cut off. And by the way, guys, if somebody comes and says they're a prophet and what they say doesn't come to pass, kill them. Well, that's how you know. I mean, that's how you know. If what somebody says doesn't come to pass, don't believe them. But... Friends, the gospel records over and over and over. If Jesus said it, it happened. He gave them every reason to believe, and not just them, but you. Turn to Psalm 89. We'll get out of the Psalms here in just a minute. If I don't hear your pages turning, I think you're not listening to me. I cry. It hurts my feelings. Psalm 89, verse 15. <laughs> Pastor Piro and I discussed the various aspects of the benefits and drawbacks to PowerPoint. So we we decided that it's not a bad thing for you to crack your Bible while you're in church. Because for about five messages now, I've had everything on the screen for you. Okay. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 15. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord, They associated God's presence with light. Does anybody know why that would be? Because in the desert for 40 years, He was a pillar of fire and a cloud by day like a nuclear cloud. And at night, He was a pillar of fire. And when it moved, they moved. The Bible speaks of this pillar going before them, searching out the best places for them to camp. They followed it. Now, Jesus has announced Himself as that very thing. And He begins to do and act like a man anointed by God to the point where when you look at him, you're looking at God's actions. You would think everybody would run and embrace that, right? We're going to find out that the world has a very different concept of what they would like God to be than what God is. Well, you can see that on the news right now, but I'm going to fight hard not to go there. What the world embraces as godly is not godly at all. I was in a place studying today. You all know where I was, but for the sake of... I was in a place studying today. Two older gentlemen were sitting there, both of whom were pastors. They were discussing their denomination and their churches. And I guess they were in the same city, although one kept talking about Washington, so maybe it was a visiting pastor. You know what their complaint was? What they were debating? And only God could put me in these situations week after week. I run into Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, it's amazing. Their churches were more interested in politics than Jesus. They weren't saying this necessarily as a bad thing. They were saying it as a matter of a statement of fact. They couldn't get people interested in their messages. They were more interested in politics than interested in the Bible. That's what these pastors were saying. And one responded to the other, Yeah, that's true everywhere except little bitty churches like charismatic and Pentecostal churches. That's what he said. I kid you not. I was sitting there and that's what the man said. He's old enough to be my grandfather. As I was listening to him, he was learned. I mean, there was no question 
This guy was theologically astute. This guy was academically astute. And apparently it was fairly perceptive. In his learned opinion, the only places that there were churches that were more interested in Jesus than in politics were in little bitty churches and in charismatic and Pentecostal churches. Isn't that interesting? Jesus' life was meant to be an example to us. It was meant to shed light on our situations. His, when the Bible declares that He is light and then says that light was the life of men, it's because His very life was supposed to illuminate for you the way that you live. His life was to be the example. Psalm 119, 105. Y'all know what that says, don't you? Your word, O Lord, is a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. Another anointed song, right? Y'all thought Sandy Patty made that up. Proverbs 6.20. Let's start there. Psalms, Proverbs. Or Amy Grant. I'm sorry. They both sang it. They both sang it. That was a little before my days in Christianity. Does that surprise y'all I haven't been saved all my life? I know it doesn't. Y'all know me. Proverbs 6.20. My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp, and this teaching is a light, and the corrections of discipline are the way to life. In the Hebrew Scriptures, over and over and over, we have truth, teaching, life, light, all tied up together. So when Jesus announced these things, they should have understood that He was an example. I think y'all are with me on that. Let me read the last Scripture in Isaiah and we'll move on. In Isaiah 42, Isaiah actually quotes this quite a bit, but let me start in one of the more familiar ones. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is the servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Is there any question who we're talking about here? Okay. This is what God, the Lord, says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives people breath, or who gives breath to its people, and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind. That's interesting, huh? To free captives from prison. And to release, and to release from those the dungeon. I'm sorry. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. It was a calling upon Jesus to open the eyes of the blind. It was a calling upon Him to set captives free. But why? Because of what Hebrews said. This was the very heart of God. This is what God, if He were on earth, if God were embodied in a man, would be doing. That's why Jesus did it. He was an example showing what was to be done. So, when you think of things in that light, this same light that illuminates your path, you see this picture over in the right-hand corner? Will blind other people. You know, I can take a flashlight and it'd be a very useful constructive tool. I used one last night in the attic. When it was dark and I couldn't see where the rafters were, I shined and I could step. The light of Jesus would show me how to handle situations. But to others that watch this life of Jesus, it's like a flashlight in their eyes, burning their eyes, causing them to be blind, to see anything but the brightness of this light, and despise it. You ever had a really bright light shine in your eyes? What would you do? You turn away. You wince. You crave darkness. So some people, Jesus' life caused them to be angry, to be sullen, to where we have thoughts like, let's kill him, come up. Because what He was showing in His life was, these are the actions of God. 
These are the things that God would want you to do, and I'm doing them as an example. And that brought horrible conviction. This is how you have an argument in John 9. How could this be God? I mean, if this man were from God, would he really have healed him on the Sabbath? And you sit back and think, what twisted thinking is that? This is an example of how Jesus came to bring division on the earth. The one light that shined illumination for the blind guy caused him to be able to see, showed him how to live, set an example for him, and many Jews put their faith in Jesus, also was a blinding light in the eyes of others because it did not fit their norm on how they thought God would do things. God didn't operate according to their plan, according to their power. Pattern. Now, that's wonderful as long as you're on the illumination side. There are a lot of times, though, that as Christians... His light, His life is as convicting to us as a bright light in your eyes. You don't like it because you don't want to do it. And that's where all the messages we've been teaching about set your heart on Him, uh, all of those things, defining your will, setting your will on Him are important. But let's look at this in Matthew 15 real quick. The light that brings illumination to some brings blindness to those who claim they can see. Didn't Jesus say, for judgment I've come into the world so that those who are blind will see and those who claim they can see will go blind? Isn't it interesting? Isn't it humbling? In fact, one time Isaiah spoke about the blind in this way. He said, Lord, we're without you. We're without your presence. We're like blind men groping along the city wall. In other words... They couldn't even find their way in the city. They didn't know where anything was. They were just touching, feeling their way around. Isn't it humbling to think that you have to become like that? That you have to lay aside your natural senses? That you have to lay aside everything that you thought was right in the right way that you would react and trust Him to be your sight? Have you never done those exercises before where you close your eyes and have a friend or somebody who's not a friend stand behind you and you fall back into their arms? How hard is that to do? And yet, in Christianity, it said that if you don't lose your life, you don't get life in Him. What do you think that means? It means that you have to become like a blind man and take up His sight. Because if you claim you can see, if you have all the answers, if you have the right way of doing things, then He'll declare you blind. For judgment, He's come to the world. He's going to push you into one category or the other. And He does it by His actions. Now, in Matthew 15... In Matthew 15, you see an example of this. You know? Matthew 15, 1. Uh, by the way, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. He's just walked on water. He's, he's done some pretty cool things. Okay? Matthew 15, 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? I've been asked that same question in a hundred different ways. And it's amazing. You can't meet in a little garage church and not get asked these kind of questions. My favorite, well, we'll cover that another time. They don't wash their hands before they eat. You thought it was just my kids that didn't do that, huh? Y'all ever heard cleanliness is next to godliness? You ever had somebody quote that to you as a scripture? It's not in the Bible. Jesus replied, I heard a national radio host yesterday make that comment. And in the same comment, he also said Jesus uh, would rather teach you to feed yourself than feed you. And quoted that as a scripture. The problem is that those are not scriptures. Uh, Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right about you when he prophesied about you. I'm going to read the rest of that. But this is, they were doing something that they thought was right. You've made a promise to support their synagogue, and then later some other need arises. Don't withdraw your support to meet that need. I mean, after all, it's devoted to God. Instead, we need to keep your money. You figure out some other way to take care of your sick relative or elderly relative. Jesus, why do you nullify the Word of God for the sake of your traditions? Now, 
I preached this in Matthew. You can go back and listen to the tape. It's on the internet. And it was scathing because of all of the ways that we nullify God's Word for the sake of our traditions. But now as I read it, I sit and I think about the ways that I do it. The ways that there seems to be something that is a right decision to me that's not necessarily God's decision. You know, Jesus liked the things that He did, no matter how appealing or how unappealing or how much we think they do or don't apply, are the standard that we go by. And you know what? He really meant it when He said if somebody slaps you on one cheek, you turn the other also. doesn't matter if you don't think that's a good idea or not wise. That really is the illumination under your path. Unless you don't do it, then it becomes a blinding light in your eyes. It's meant to push you into one category or the other. You remember when we ate the biblical meal? There was these ground up things. Cassie said it was a perfect recipe for heartburn. It was radishes and garlic and onions and bell peppers. Maybe something else too. You ate that with the bread because parts of Jesus' life, the Word, who He is, are hard. They're hard to accept. And although parts of it are sweet, parts are hard. Every time a prophet ate a scroll, it was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. Salvation is great as you come into the grace. It takes more maturity as you begin to understand what's required of you. It's free, and it costs you everything. Isn't that interesting? It's one of the many paradoxes in the Christian life. Here's what Isaiah said about the people. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. What comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Now, this is a side note, and I don't want to lose what I was talking about. But for this reason, there is no food on the planet. I don't care what anybody says that is unclean in God's eyes. No matter what you hear, no matter what famous people do or don't eat pork, Jesus has declared all foods clean. Y'all understand that? Okay. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Do you know that our leaders, the leaders of our religion, the people who sit in the seat of Moses are offended at you, Jesus? Do you know that? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted would be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Why would Jesus declare them blind? One is because they were supposed to be the teachers. They declared that they could see. But here's the biggest reason. These guys who are supposed to be the examples of what God's law, what God's instruction would require, were offended every time they saw God's actions. See, Jesus was an embodiment of God's actions. He was a perfect representation of His being, and they were offended every time He did anything. What does that show about them? They don't know God. Isn't that, doesn't that show that? So when somebody has a problem with what you're doing, provided that you're walking in the Spirit and are anointed by God, is it really you they have a problem with? No. If you're performing the work of God, if you're doing the will of God, it's God they have the problem with. And same is true of us with other brothers. I may not like every choice somebody makes, but you know what? If they're in the will of God, what I find myself doing is kicking against God in their life. How many Christian brothers have gotten in a fight over what God's will was for one of them? Gamaliel was not even a Christian yet. What did he say? Brothers, I tell you, I think you ought to just back off and leave this thing alone. If this is not of God, it'll go away. But if it is of God, you'll find yourself fighting against God. Well, we'd do so well to do that sometimes. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4. I don't need to read it to you. 4, I'll go ahead and read it to you. This is blinded by the God of this age. But blinded how is really the question. In 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. 
At that time, each will receive his praise from God. I was supposed to be in Second Corinthians. Yeah, sorry about that. That was a good scripture too. Yeah. It, just, it was like I was standing up here preaching with a zipper down and nobody told me. Okay, Second Corinthians 4.1. Yeah, Matthew did that. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What does that mean? Man, I, I, you read it all the time. What does it mean? We just we go ahead and relegate that to Satan's blinded them, they can't see. What does that mean? What is it they can't see? What does it really say? They cannot see Jesus as the image of God. See, he, they could look at Him and take issue with the fact that somebody didn't wash their hands or the fact that somebody was healed on a Sabbath or on the fact that they didn't understand what city He was born in or on the fact that His father was just a carpenter and they may even hint at Him and call Him an illegitimate son. They may pick on every outward thing, but it escaped them that this guy was the glory and the image of God. Brad and I have been discussing on a regular basis now what it meant in the incarnation. What does it really mean when we say Jesus is the Son of God? It means what Hebrews says it means. He is the exact representation of God. Well, how have you sat down and you know taken Jesus' fingerprint to see if it matched God's? That's not what it's talking about. Everything that He did was a perfect picture of God. And yet they had a problem with everything that he did. This is how they could throw a man out of a synagogue in John 9. What was the man's crime? What was the man's crime in John 9? He had been healed by Jesus. His great crime was that after all of these years born in sin, that he would not condemn the man who healed him. Who was blind in that situation? But why were they blind? How did the God of this age blind them? They didn't like what they saw. Did they think they were all right with God? Paul was killing Christians at one point in his life and thought he was doing a service to God. Have to come face to face with everything that you see Jesus do as a perfect representation of God's actions. And so you don't have a problem with the man. You have a problem with God. This is how they could think that it was a greater crime to break the Sabbath than to heal a man blind. What kind of twisted thinking says, now it'd be better to wait till tomorrow and let this guy be blind one more day than to heal somebody on the Sabbath? Somebody who was blinded by the radiance of Jesus. They couldn't see who he was because of who he was. And he's going to lay it out. But you know what? Same way today. That's why there's such an attempt among great thinkers to make every miracle that Jesus did some natural event. Because that would escape it being the work of God. Not God working like God did it and Jesus was just there declaring it. Jesus doing the work of God. Isn't it interesting that that's how you get saved? By doing the will of God? See, He's a light to our path. The same thing that lights our path is a light in their eyes. This is how they bring a woman and not the man in John 8. And John 8, you remember, they're ready to kill a woman. And do you remember why? Was it because they cared about justice? No. If they'd cared about justice, they would have done what Leviticus said. When they caught her in the act of adultery, there had to be somebody else there. But they didn't bring them both. They just brought her. They were ready to kill this woman to trap Jesus. Blinded. But blinded why? Because it didn't fit into their norm. It didn't fit into what they thought ought to happen. This is how in John 7, when Jesus is teaching at a feast, teaching people about pouring Himself out into them, their conclusion was, let's kill Him. You know? 
I'm just glad Jesus is... Everybody wants Jesus to be walking in the flesh today. I'm, not, I'm glad that he's not walking the earth in the flesh today for a lot of reasons. He'd be localized, number one. And if he was in Texas, which is where I'm sure he would live, the people in Louisiana wouldn't get to see him. He'd live in Israel, I'm sure. The second reason is, when people are confronted with the actions of God, which is what Jesus really did, it pushes them into a corner to decide whether they're with God or not with God. There'd be a plot to assassinate him every day. You know, there really would. There was in his death. Uh, let's move on. This concept that I'm talking about, blinding some and illuminating others, giving life to some and bringing death to others. Remember that judgment is on all mankind and in Christ you cross from death to life. That's what John's been teaching. It's what we've been building up to all this time to where in one more chapter, Jesus is going to stand and say, I am the resurrection. I am life. That's me. He's going to identify himself in that way. You ever heard somebody say, well, the Bible never really says Jesus is God. It's because they don't understand the message of the Bible. It's true. If you take a concordance out, you will not find Jesus say, I am God. But he declares himself to be the anointed one. He declares himself to be doing the work of God, to be one with God, all of those things. You just need eyes. Illumination to some, blinding to others. This is important, though, is because in John 10, which we're going to begin now, and I promise will not take that long, Jesus begins to lay it out as he is the good shepherd. That's how he begins to present himself. This teaching is like so many others. It holds Jesus up as the way, the example, the one to look at. And it sharply divides its hearers. This division was intended. Those who embrace the action of God and those who are appalled by them. There's no room in the middle. You are supposed to either embrace the actions of God or be completely turned off by them. And when Jesus preached, you'll see that's exactly what happened what happened when all of the apostles preached. That's why they're getting beaten one day and praised the next. Examples of people who are divided after witnessing Jesus' actions. In John 7, verse 42, it speaks of the crowd greatly divided after that uh, incident at the Feast of Tabernacles. In John 9, which we've already read, after this healing, they were greatly divided. Do you remember what the people said? This guy cannot be of God if he did this on the Sabbath. Then other people said, well, how could he not be of God if he did this? Your actions are supposed to push people to a place where they say, that guy's got to be in love with God. God's got to be with him. If not, how could he have done that? How could he have loved that guy when he slapped him? How could he have lived free from worry and full of joy in the midst of that? Your actions are supposed to cause that. Others may accuse you, but there'll be a sharp division in the crowd because some will say, no, he doesn't act like a lost guy. He's got to be a Christian. Happened everywhere Jesus went. And in John 10, 19, we're going to read tonight, they're going to be divided again. I'd have called this message the Great Divide, except I want you all thinking about ice cream while I was preaching. Y'all see my pictures up there? We're going to turn to John 10. Y'all can get there. It's not Ben and Jerry's. It's Bluebell. Golly, girl, you act like you don't live in the South. Okay, John 10. We're going to start in verse 1. Jesus is going to be teaching about the Good Shepherd. I put a couple slides up there just for fun for you. Can you all tell what that is on the left? It's a shepherd out in the field with all of his sheep. You see how rocky it is there? You see all of those rocks? Remind me when I get to the gate. You take those rocks and you assemble this picture that's on the left. And I'll tell you what that is in a minute. Okay, here's Jesus. I'm going to start in verse 41 just so you remember what I've been talking about. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. I tell you the truth. A man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought the brought out all his own, all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now, they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. 
Jesus used this figure of speech because they did not understand what he was telling them. You ever had somebody ask you whether you take the Bible literally or figuratively? What did that say? Jesus used this figure of speech. When I was telling you earlier about the culture, this was not like... You would not have to give them a lesson on um, shepherding before you did this. You wouldn't have to go get out a, a textbook and show them pictures of sheep. Half of the audience he was talking to did this for a living. Do you understand what I'm saying? The other half were agricultural. Therefore, Jesus said again that there was beeping in the background. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And I want you to look at your footnote there. What's it say? Or kept safe. This is one time. I know we want to say Jesus was talking about salvation all of the time. If you're talking about sheep here, they're not looking for salvation. They want to be kept safe. Okay? I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be kept safe. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Here's what we have going on here. By the way, do you understand why I made the distinction between salvation there and kept safe? And no. You can't go in and out of salvation. You can come in, then go out, but you can't come back in. The Bible's very clear about that. You understand what I'm saying? But safety, you can move in and out of the people of God at will. And God will be with you and keep you safe. Why does Jesus say He is the gate four times in that passage? What does that mean? Are we looking for a door handle on Jesus? A gate. He, he's some kind of latching instrument? What on earth is that? In this picture up here, you see the rocks on the left. You would take those rocks and you would assemble... Let me set this down. You would assemble some kind of stone wall like this. Can you all see that? There's a fat guy I got in the picture here. It kind of covered my gate. But you would assemble a wall. You would back that into a hillside. You know why? Because in this wall, what you would do is you would leave a narrow passageway wide enough for one sheep to get to at a time. You'd push all the sheep into this gate, these piles of rocks that are around you, with a hill or a cave behind you. This is so that if something were coming to attack the sheep, number one, there'd be some kind of barrier. Number two, it'd kind of keep the sheep corralled, not just wandering off. There would be one way in and one way out. And you know who would protect that way? In fact, the shepherd at night would lie down and sleep in that gate. He would lay his body as a physical barrier for enemies not to be able to get in and hurt the sheep and for the sheep to be protected. They understood this. When Jesus says, I'm a good shepherd, a good shepherd would do this because he wanted to protect the sheep. He'd do this because he truly cared about the sheep. And what Jesus was saying is, I am laying my body down as the only way that somebody can enter this pen, the only way they can leave it. That's why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. They understood perfectly what he was saying. Incidentally, that brush on top of there in that picture, those thorny materials, do you all see that? You know what that's for? If the shepherd was in such trouble, if there were so many things that were attacking, that they were starting to come over the wall, not just through the gate, but over the wall, he'd light it on fire. This is why Zacharias says, in that day, that day of trouble unlike it's never happened before, I'll be a wall of fire around you, my people. In other words, yes, I'm standing in the gate for you. And I'll make sure nothing goes around me, over the wall, under the wall. I'll light it on fire to protect you. And yet Christians are scared about enduring trials. Egypt's a perfect example of how it happens. It'd be light for you and dark everywhere else. Moving on. John 10, verse 14, speaks of Jesus the Good Shepherd. This Good Shepherd has room in His heart for more than just the speckled sheep. He's got room in His heart for more than just one breed of sheep or one flock. Watch what he says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's referencing the gate there again. 
The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. You know why that's so indicting? I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Number one, he's comparing them to sheep. Number two, he's just explained something they all know. You can have sheep, multiple sheep in a pen, in a pen just like the one in the previous picture. One shepherd could walk up, call, whistle, do his little noises, and his sheep would follow him out, just like a dog follows you, because they live together 24 hours a day for most of the year, and they got close. That's why it was also hard to kill one every year for Passover that was innocent. The other sheep would stay there. In fact, if a stranger came to get him out of the pen because they saw that the pen was safety, they would run from him. Now, Jesus is here as the shepherd in Israel, the one that Ezekiel promised who would feed them on the green fields next to the springs. Ezekiel promised that. Jesus has already fed them. He's already announced himself as the good shepherd. And now some are running to him and others are running away from them. Jesus brought division in Israel and brings division today. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. Now I know if you've ever met a Mormon, that's the first thing you heard out of his mouth. Bless his heart. Jesus was not talking about some other continent uh, hundreds of years later. He's talking about the children of God scattered around the world. He says uh, the Gospels go ahead and say that a little bit later. But I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. They too shall listen to my voice. Now, Jesus is talking about himself as a shepherd, right? But what else do you hear elements of there? Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. said, there will be a prophet like me who comes. You must listen to every word that comes out of his mouth, or you will be cut off from the people. Jesus is identifying himself there again with that. If you want to be in God, in the light, if you want to have life, you have to listen to him. You have to do what he says to do. They too will listen to my voice. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. Y'all ever saying we are Christians? Uh, they will know we are Christians by our love. We are one in the Spirit. We are one. Who was he speaking to when he was talking about the original flock? Jews. Who are the other sheep? So you are the add-on, and they are the original flock. But when you sing we are one, we are one in the Spirit, and they'll know we are Christians, we are Christians by our love. Has an Israeli ever come to your mind? It's their sheep pen. It's their flock. You are the other, the straggler, the outsider, the crippled, the lame, the paralyzed that when some of them did not answer, you were invited. That's what the Bible teaches. That's exactly what happened. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from the Father. In Ephesians, this one shepherd one uh, fold idea is really laid out. But the idea, well, let me read it in Ephesians, but I want to tell you, it's scattered throughout the entire Old Testament. But you're going to find out to the Jews, there was nothing more incendiary. There was nothing that was more upsetting. Why, if you were a Jew in first century Israel, would you not want to hear that Gentiles were going to be saved and included in the flock of God with you? Why might you not want to hear that? You are in the fourth Gentile kingdom to rule over the earth, and all four had bitterly oppressed the Jews. The Babylonians had brought them in under captivity. The Medo-Persians had oppressed them. Uh, the Greeks had conquered them. And now the Romans were occupying them. Is that the guy you want to share the kingdom of God with forever? Probably not. So you're not excited to hear about this. You remember what I said about the light of God illuminates the way for some? and blinds others. This is an example where this could be teaching them how to live, how to view it. But instead, in many cases, it was a blinding light that they couldn't get past 
Turn with me to Ephesians. A few more scriptures and then we're done. Then I'll take questions. Now in Ephesians 2. For He Himself, and the He Himself here is Jesus, He Himself, 2.14, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross and by which he put to death their hostility. There were two basic obstacles that a Jew had in understanding that a Gentile could be saved or should be saved. One is, they had been the oppressors. This would be like going to uh, somebody in the 1840s who happened to be black and saying, hey, good news, God's coming to save all these whiteies here. You know, That might not be the salvation message that spread through the slave community. You know, it might not be just music to their ears, even though it might have been true, right? That's one obstacle. The other is, their distinctive culture given to them by Moses required them in many ways to exclude themselves, to segregate themselves, to not eat with Gentiles, to consider things touched by certain people unceremonial. They had been at war with many of the Gentile kings. All of these things, and much of it was set up by God. But His plan was to bring one man who would bring division on the earth, those for God and those against, and destroy the other divisions that were on the earth. There would no longer be a Jew or a Gentile. Not in the way that you thought about it. There would simply be those who liked God's actions and those who were appalled by God's actions. See, that's what Jesus really did. His own people, many, saw what He did and liked it and saw it as God. Others Saw it, couldn't deny it. One time they said, we can't deny this man's done an outstanding miracle. Let's kill him. That's tantamount to wanting to kill God. Not because Jesus was incarnate. That's not why. That's tantamount to wanting to kill God because He was doing God's work as if it were God Himself right there. And they should have seen that. Turn with me to Psalms. We're going to go from Psalms to John again real quickly and we'll be ended. In Psalm 72, you see promises of the Gentile kingdoms uh, coming into Christ as far back as Genesis 49. I figured we ought not stop there. Does anybody remember what Genesis 49 says? 49.10? It's a prophecy over the man who my son bears his name. 49.10? No one? You better start to learn to read your word more. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah until it uh, comes to him... Uh, comes to him and the obedience of to him whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations will be his. That's a prophecy over a man named Judah, the fourth son of Israel, about all of the nations coming under the obedience or dominion of God. So it obviously was not just an Israeli thing then. But we're skipping way ahead in history to Psalm seventy two because y'all will only give me so much time before you start throwing chairs at me. 72, verse 17. May His name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through Him, and they will call Him blessed. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to His glorious name. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Now, here's a Jew writing a thousand years before Jesus who's excited at the thought of salvation extending to all of the earth and God being the God of the Gentiles too. But by the time we get to Jesus' day and somebody showing up that is displaying the works of God, they don't even want to hear about that. Don't talk to me about blind eyes being opened and sure don't talk to me about those Gentile dogs being saved. We don't like that. We want what we want. Boy, in that statement, you can kind of hear echoes of the modern church though, can't you? Don't tell me about those Jews. Don't tell me about that Israeli thing. We're Americans. We want to hear God wants me blessed. We want to pray the prayer of Jabez, read the purpose-driven life, and be rich. That's what we want, because we're Americans. Now, I ask you something. Is that blinded by the light, 
or the light illuminating your steps, I wonder. Psalm 86, verse 9. In Psalm 86, verse 9, you hear these words. All nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. All nations. It was God's plan from the beginning to graft you in. He just started with the Jews. It's funny though. We've got it worked out to where it was God's plan to save us all along and the Jews are the afterthought. He started with the Jews and worked to us. In Isaiah 11, He said, I'll make you a light to the Gentiles. In Isaiah 49, He says something very similar. In Zechariah 2, y'all should turn to Zechariah just because I bet you haven't been there in your Bibles in a while. The minor prophets are not minor prophets because they're unimportant. They're not minor prophets because they're boring. I assure you they are exciting to read. They're power-packed. They're minor because they had relatively small works. Those of you still fumbling around, it's page 1054 in the Thompson Chain. 1053. Chapter 2, verse 10. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. God's plan was that He would live among the people. Now we have a man who is the perfect representation of God. The radiance of God's very glory doing the work of God. And it's a dividing line for the people. Some embrace it and others run from it. What does that really show? People wouldn't be very happy living with God, would they? See, that's, that's what embracing or not embracing Jesus' actions showed. And that's how He's a dividing line in history. Jesus brought division. In John 19, or John 10, verse 19, we'll finish the, what we're going to read tonight. I'll go ahead and turn there. And it sets up our next teaching about mere men. In John 10, verse 19, it says, At these words the Jews were again divided. Why does it say again divided? Because on three previous occasions we have the same scenario. About half the crowd's for him, or maybe 80%, I don't know. Most of the crowd's for him and the leaders are not. Many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind man? What drastically different things could be said? One says, he's demon-possessed. And the other says, no, this guy's a healer. He can't be demon-possessed. Sometimes they call him a drunkard. Other times a prophet. Isn't that interesting? But everybody had a strong opinion about this man, one way or another. He didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring division. I can't help. I've got to throw one more plug in there. Next time you turn on the news and you hear what is being said, Think about it in those terms. Peace or division. Because Jesus was a dividing line in the sand. His actions were a dividing line. And you know what? We are little Christ. It means you're supposed to do the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1.9 speaks of the... I'm sorry, 1.19 speaks of the wisdom of this world being foolishness. And that if you... In 1 Corinthians 3.18, if you want to become wise... You have to become like a fool. You read that at first glance and think, what on earth could that mean? Why? I mean, does God really want us to be raving idiots? It's the same meaning as we talked about earlier about blindness. It's not that He wants you to be without sight. He wants you to give up your wisdom in the same way as talking earlier about giving up your sight and taking up His. Jesus is the perfect example of what that is. We study His life to find out how we should live. This is why First John can make the statement, if you love Him, you'll walk as He walked. And that's exactly what it means. We're going to close with John 4.35. Have you all noticed that in every one of these slides, there's been a little picture of the wheat up in the left-hand corner? Because I like wheat. But Jesus made a statement one time. He had just got through debating with Nicodemus about what salvation was and what needed to occur. Then he had run into a woman at the well who readily admitted her sin. Do you remember that? And in John 4.35, Jesus has finished talking to her and His disciples come back from going to look for food. 
And uh, I'm sorry, 432. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know anything about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for the harvest. He was teaching through his actions the same thing that he continued to teach through John and that we're trying to get across tonight. His actions were illuminating the way. They didn't have any problem with him talking to Nicodemus at night, having a religious debate. But they wanted him to stop what he was doing and begin to eat when he was talking with a woman of low reputation who was a Samaritan by a well. He's telling guys, quit being blind. Open your eyes. This is the harvest field of God. Open your eyes. There's only so much time that we can work in it. I want to live with somebody who has sight given by God, not somebody who's blind. Because what it really means to be blind in the kingdom is that you looked at the actions of God and decided they were appalling to you. There is no room in the middle. If you're not for Jesus, you're against Him. That's what the Bible teaches. All the way back to the prophet Elijah in Kings 18. Choose this day whom you'll serve. If you want to serve God, great. you want to serve Baal, get on that side. Then he proved it to him by calling down fire. Joshua cried it out before Elijah ever lived in 1600 B.C. But as for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. The same call is going out to the church today. And Jesus' very actions did that. Yours should do the same. You know why water and oil don't mix? Anybody know that? Some of you scientific people in here? One has small molecules and the other has big molecules. They're both wet substances. They're both liquid. But one has little bitty tight molecules, the water, and the oil has big elongated molecules. Light and darkness don't mix like oil and water don't mix. There's a natural division there when they meet. There should be in our lives. Our actions should cause some people to like you. Those are the ones that like God. And others not to. Those are the ones that have a problem with God. When our actions send a confusing message, nobody knows what side we're on. You need to make your calling and your election certain. You need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You need to make it plain where you stand. Jesus did at the cost of His life. And He did it on purpose for your benefit. 